Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts that we have read. I'm Cameron, and with me, as always, is Michael. Hi. Today we are, uh, let's see, let me look, let me check it out, boop, 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 we're reading a book. We read a book. Mm-hmm. Part of the winter of books. <laughs> At one point, we had the summer of classics. Now we are in the winter of books. We got this book. We got next episode, a different book. <laughs> episode after that, an additional book. We should try switching up the format and record an episode on a book we haven't read yet. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. We'll finally get to Persuasive Games. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll we'll <laughs> talk about it, uh, have a really nice conversation, and then the episode will end, and then we'll both read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just do it. I, you know, I've read it a couple times. I've got, I've got memories that can do it. This episode is about Shovik Mukherjee's. Um, I have it right in front of me. I don't know why I blanked on the title just now. Video games and storytelling, reading games, and playing books. <laughs> oh my god! Ah, oh, liquid. <laughs> playing books. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yes snake, snake if we go back to the beginning in the invention of the first mud or multi-user During dungeon the cold war snake <laughs> our father created something much more powerful a playable book <laughs> you you're the readable game snake but i am the playable book i will not be held back by my inferior medium <laughs> oh. Well, that's just the next two hours. Just me doing that. <laughs> How would you feel about that? I mean, it'd be pretty fun. Unfortunately, it would mean that. Well, actually, no, that would be a way to talk about the contents of this book, uh, which I do mm-hmm. want to talk about because I think they're good. Mm hmm. Yeah, we you, you um I don't know do you, how do we want to go about it? Normally, we have a melange of of things we talk about here at the beginning, but uh, since you just jumped right to it, I think this book's great. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. Uh I you know, I I I I am aware of, of uh Shovik's work. I have interviewed Shovik for science fiction film and television. I'll put a link to that down in the description of this episode if you're interested in, uh in that. But Darshana and I interviewed Shovik as part of our special issue we did on science fiction games, I think last year. Mm-hmm. Question question mark. Uh, I believe, and you um, helped us do some of the transcription for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so you got to hear the the full interview, and I think it's a really cool interview. We kind of talked about um, speculation and like how speculation operates in and out of different cultural contexts. And because uh, Mukherjee is doing a lot of science fiction game analysis in here, um, it, it, it you know it, was, it ended up being a really great interview. Um, I am regretful <laughs> that. I did not read this book more closely for my own book. I was um, curious about that. Yeah. So I yeah, my my story with this book is this came out in 2017? Uh, 2015 is the year that I have. 2015? Yeah, I, I believe that to be true. I don't, I don't know why. I, uh, oh, uh, 2017 is the post-colonialism book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that makes sense. Uh this book came out and I was in I was doing my PhD 
and uh, I was beginning my dissertation probably somewhere in that universe. And I like opened it up and did a little glance at it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is very in the weeds of game studies. Not important for me because my my dissertation was not really on game studies. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have just kind of like. And this, you know, this is on me. This is like this is a very uh, normal moment in academia. I think you can tell me if you think this is right, Michael. But I did it, so I had like this mental model in my head, and I was like, I just don't have to think about that book. I know what it is. Mm-hmm. And then I sat down and I read this book, and I realized <laughs> I was wrong, <laughs> like very wrong. And it would have been much more helpful if I'd read this book in the past, uh, because I think it resolves a lot of debates. But I think it's easy to do in academia because we have so that productivity is measured as such, you know, in the way that we think about how you engage with a book and what the kind of stakes of engagement with a book are. It's easy to get a mental model in your head about what a book is and be mistaken about that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm a victim of my own um, reading in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's correct. That is a, a real like uh, pitfall of academia or particularly academic production. And this is not the case um, with uh, 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 Shovik's book, but like, uh, the broader tendency where, like, say you you are aware of a scholar because you read one of their previous books, uh, right. and then they put out a new book, and you realize, like, oh, they're just, like, rewriting that same book, or they're, like, tackling the exact same argument, but from a slightly different angle, and the new angle, like, while probably important for whatever this particular researcher wants to do, is not relevant to my greater concern, and so I can kind of, like, shelf that one in my, in my head for a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Lots of books, yeah. it turns out, exist. <laughs> uh, right, right. And so, you, yeah, you end up kind of creating these, like, mental things or whatever. And so, like, I, I've read uh, Shovik's uh, Video Games Post-Colonial book, uh, and Post-Colonialism book. I, I checked that book out. Um, but this book, I was like, oh, yeah, this is about, like, narrative theory in games. And I don't really care about that. So, mm-hmm. um, which is true. It is about narrative theory in games. I would think, I, I actually do think that that is probably its major thing. But it is also, like, its own theory of how people play games and like what does it mean to play a game um this book is just as important i think in the conversation about how games are played and what is the kind of philosophical process that we go we undergo when we play a game as uh brendan keogh's book um you know which kind of gets held up as the standard at this point or one of the standards about like what is the philosophy of the embodiment of play i think that this um that this book video games and storytelling is just as important for that I, I do think it's a little bit of a victim of um, a titling here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? Like video games and storytelling, reading games and playing books is not very is not is not remotely. I don't think descriptive of the actual project of the book. Um, but also, as someone who has done this exact same thing, <laughs> that went, that went for a title that uh, that I found evocative rather than a title that was explanatory, um, I get I get it. You know, I, I I've got empathy for it, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do we want to just dig right into it? Um, I, I know you've done some some uh, biographical information here on uh, Shovik Mukherjee. But mm-hmm. um, other than that, I mean, we can do that and then we can dive right in. Yeah. So uh, just to uh, give you a little bit of context for who Mukherjee is, uh, Shovik Mukherjee is an assistant professor in cultural studies uh, currently at the Center for Studies in Social Sciences, Calcutta. Uh, this was his first book, uh, his second one you've already mentioned, which is uh, Video Games and Postcolonialism, Empire Plays Back. Uh, and then he has a third book. I think this is a 
book and not an edited collection. Let me double yeah. check. Okay, it is a book. It, is a, it, yeah. it kind of looks like it might be an edited collection, but it is a book. Okay. Uh, so the third book is Video Games in the Indian Subcontinent, Development, uh, Cultures, and Representations. So uh, uh, if, if, if any of the things that I just said weren't enough of a clue, just to uh, surface it a little bit, uh, uh, Mukherjee is clearly within the kind of lineage or trajectory that we've uh, touched on a few times throughout the show of uh, more of a cultural studies perspective on games uh, in general, uh, rather than uh, some of the alternatives to that. Uh, uh, I don't like there are many of them. I don't know how to uh, condense them down. But like I, I've noticed as we've read like particular people show up and they're doing like bringing cultural studies or sort of perspectives of cultural studies to games. Uh, and Mukherjee is uh, doing at least uh, uh, partly that. Um, there's other stuff going on in this particular book, at least, that I think is really fascinating. Uh, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. That there, you know, this is not a book that is interested in cleaving away uh, parts of games in order to talk about one specific part. You know, it 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 wants to talk about the full phenomenon and gets, it gets to it through philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, you oh, know, hot damn. Interested. Sorry. Sure. <laughs> I just I was just glancing at his uh, uh, bio here on the website and I did see in the second paragraph, uh, uh, aside from uh, games and everything, his other interests are the digital humanities, post-structuralist theory, post-humanism and early modern literature. So this is why this is why I'm responding so strongly to this book is that uh, Mukherjee and I are like aligned on so many uh, uh, perspectives here. That's fascinating. Yeah, I don't know why I said this to you off mic beforehand, but for some reason I have in my mind that, that Chovic is like interested in Shakespeare and and we'll talk about it in this book too. But I, I don't know. I, I can also ask him about it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, you know, like some like some of the authors um, who, uh, who show up on the show, right? Uh, we, we have professional connections. And uh, what's interesting, in, and I don't think you just said, um, just it's kind of buried in the thing here, but... Uh, Shovik has been really influential in founding and working with Digra India, mm -hmm. um, which which is you know the, its kind of own regional or national, I guess national version of Digra, the Digital Games Research Association, which is an international group, uh, overwhelmingly historically been located in in uh, Europe and in the United States, but now there are additional Digras kind of going around. Digra India is really growing, it seems, and I think Digra Australia is the the other kind of um, uh, newer uh, Digra regional group, national mm -hmm. group. Um, but uh, the Digra India stuff, I, I would really encourage people to check that out uh, because they do they have a they have a conference coming up that I think is free to watch. Um, I'm pretty sure that it's free to watch the presentations because I think they're going to be streamed. But it's on uh, science fiction, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, science fiction games is like the big theme in the conference. And they've been doing lectures, I think, once a month. Um, I don't know how you get that information other than getting on the Digra India Facebook page, mm -hmm. <laughs> which, which uh, you know, uh, your tolerance for uh, that platform uh, might inform your decision. But I would encourage you to do it. I've been able to catch a couple talks. The, the timing for me and, and for people in the United States is is generally kind of flipped so you gotta you gotta get up early or stay up late um but but it's very cool and obviously there are a huge number of game study scholars uh and early uh career graduate students and uh early career scholars 
who are interested in game studies, who are finally having the capability or getting a platform to do that in, in a kind of larger uh, space, kind of post Zoom, which has been really cool to um, really cool to see. So I just want to make a plug for that. The Digger India is like a cool and vibrant place where things are happening, and uh, uh, Mukherjee has been really involved in that. So just wanted to, wanted to flag that. So well, actually, before I talk about chapter one, I guess I can uh, uh, gesture at the structure broadly, mm. right? Chapter one is an introduction introductory chapter uh the remainder of the book is split into three sections uh section one is called machine and then there are two chapters in that uh section two is called game two chapters in that uh part three is called story and there are three chapters in that one two three well yeah okay so there's actually sort of four but uh Chapter nine is like a conclusion that I think really sort of stands apart from uh, uh, the the larger structure. Anyhow, right. uh, introdu- the introduction, this first chapter really is doing what uh, what many introductions throughout the show have always done, which is uh, since introdu- time immemorial, yes. introductions have introduced <laughs> the text. Yes, right. <laughs> uh, just like laying out in kind of the biggest possible terms. Um, what this book is going to do and how it's going to do it. Like, what are the key kind of debates that this thing is zeroing in on? How is it going to respond to them? Uh, And what are the ideas that it's going to uh, uh, center on that it's going to unpack in more detail later in the text? Mm -hmm. So um, the introduction then is called Video Games and Storytelling. Uh, and it begins with a sort of anecdotal kind of description of a, uh, I, I suppose, real uh, play session of Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. And uh, it touches on something that we've talked about, I think, on this show before, but I know also that we've talked about uh with regard to like too much future, our fallout show. I, I remember talking about this specifically on too much future, though. I don't remember why exactly um, about mm, how when the you... too much future experience. Yes. <laughs> uh, I know we talked about it. But I don't know why we would have. Well, I know it was like a thought that occurred to me that when you talk about playing a game, there's this weird thing that happens where you will talk about uh, your avatar as yourself, but not consistently, right? You'll sort mm. and it's specifically in the case of like too much future, you and I play kind of characters. Um, and so we'll kind of flip back and forth between saying like, you know, Tonk and Eleanor do this or that, and then I did this or that, and then uh, the other thing that will happen, of course, when discussing playing a game that you um, uh, do what I just did, where you flip it into the second person and you start talking about the game as like a, you know, if another person, the listener perhaps, were to play this game, they would also have maybe kind of a similar experience. So all of these particular like uh, uh, subject positions or what have you, or or sort of uh, uh, actant positions uh, within the description of what happens when you play a game uh, is interesting to Mukherjee. And he then sort of outlines, you know, there's a a long history of trying to talk about narrative in video games. And he points to uh, Janet Murray, uh, Hamlet on the Holodeck, and Espen Arthas Cybertexts as kind of these foundational books for thinking about how narrative works in video games, Um, but also not just foundational, but also on uh, different sides of a split between uh, narratology for Murray's part and uh, what is called ludology for Arseth's part. And a little bit about, you know, the ludology narratology debates, which I think we'll probably we've talked about it before, but I think we can fill in some gaps as we uh, continue to talk through this. But Mm -hmm. then uh, Mukherjee makes kind of his 
big intervention, which is that uh, there is a way of uh, looking at video games and narrative that both the ludology and the narratology camps kind of exclude by their very design. Uh, and this is going to be uh, the, the subject of this book, the thing that Mukherjee wants to like unpack for us. Uh, and it requires a uh, application of both Derridian deconstruction and Deluso-Guattarian theory to develop a sort of fresh perspective on what happens, what is really going on when you play a game, uh, and how does storytelling or narrative fit into that. What I like about this book, uh, in, a, in a broad sense, is that Shovik sets out to be like, hey, here's the deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> within game studies, we have hit this, like, weird uh, impasse between multiple schools of thinking. Mm -hmm. If they had bothered to engage with this other tradition that was happening a full 30 years beforehand, maybe these problems wouldn't be so present. Right. And that's, like, just the basic claim, right? Like, hey, Derrida's running around and is important. Uh, Duels and Guattari are running around and are important. They have their own kind of traditions that are involved. Uh, they neatly, you know, without a lot of complication, intervene in these debates and resolve many of the problems that are present in the debate. Mm -hmm. So then, therefore, maybe we should just look to them. You know, it's, it's a pretty um, declarative book in that way. Yeah. Which I like. Yeah. No, and it's... Uh, it is uh, uh, really refreshing in that way. Um and, you know, partly, I think, uh, a response to the fact that, like, though, like, Murray and Arseth, just for instance, because they're taken as representative here of these two distinct camps, mm -hmm. um, they do have reasons for not engaging with these ideas, right? Like, uh, I, I believe we talked about this on our Hamlet in the Holodeck <laughs> episode, but, like, Murray explicitly positions herself against, like, postmodern or post-structuralist theory. People like uh, Derrida and Deleuze and Guattari are people that she does not think have uh, anything to say, and they're not going to say anything in, in her writing. Uh, and similarly, Arseth is extremely concerned with uh, developing a new meta-language uh, dedicated mm -hmm. so much to this idea of games as being a new object or the cybertext i guess as being a new object uh that it needs a uh new language uh to describe it rather than defaulting to a as you said a a school of thought that is at this at the point of writing 20 to 30 years old so mm -hmm. um i think that's really cool right being the the way that uh uh Mukherjee is ca uh, capable of constantly kind of showing like hey here is how here is how this stuff actually really uh vitally speaks to what happens with video games and it's stuff that has been conspicuously ignored by the biggest voices in the discipline yes and i what i because we you know i it's better to say it as a broad statement rather than to drill down where it happens because you're right that throughout this book uh murray and arseth get summoned up for then Mukherjee to do something else with their thoughts mm -hmm. um, or to talk about how, you know, they, the way that they set up these two parameters that you just said, they don't quite get there. Um, what, what's so interesting to me about the way that he does that is it's very similar to the way that Christopher Patterson in Open World Empire wrote about Murray and that and about this kind of question of postmodernism and what happens when you kind of, um, you know, at first blush, just eject postmodernism without really considering it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, 
you know, as, as uh, Patterson says, you end up losing a lot, right? And you end up losing, you know, what did postmodernism mean in the 90s? Well, w- within postmodernism and within the kind of critical apparatus there, uh, you were ejecting a lot of uh, identity-based criticism too. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, and um, uh, kind of uh, experience-based work as well. And and so you know I think that that Mukherjee is doing a similar thing here to be like hey wait, w- what are you losing when you do all of that? Uh, but the second part of that, so the thing I actually wanted to say is that what is so um, interesting to me about the way this book works is that Mukherjee is often reading these authors against themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a Derridian move, yes. right? Uh-huh. Like 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 he's fully absorbed the apparatus here, right? Like. So he does this kind of thing and he does it regularly throughout the book where he'll be like, in this paragraph, Janet Murray says, blah, blah. In the next paragraph, Janet Murray says, blah, blah. These are incompatible thoughts. Mm -hmm. Here is why. Mm -hmm. Here is what this kind of torsion or this kind of uh, friction between these two things. Here's what it actually produces. Here's how Derrida or Deleuze and Guattari or, you know, any of the other kind of post-structuralist or deconstructive thinkers he's engaging with. Here's how they actually resolve this conflict or this internal torsion within the argument as it's presented. It's beautifully done. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's 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 just this most precise surgical kind of of interaction with the thing. Um, and, you know, some of those are, are criticisms that we had of those books. And, and so it's it feels kind of uh, gratifying to see someone else be like, yeah, this what is, what is going on here? Uh, so I like that. You know, there's a little bit of confirmation that happens that, that's enjoyable. But also he's just pointing out so many things that I never would have gotten to. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, I I'm a pretty good close reader when it comes to this kind of stuff. But there's a uh, detail here that that I, I just don't operate at. Um, but which is, I mean, it just makes the argument go. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the whole thing really much like the Lego racers, um, you know, something's got to make it go <laughs> and, and close reading of academic work. Here's what really makes it go. So anyway, I, I, that's part of the method here. I would say beyond the theory being used, part of the method is close reading the academic work you're engaging with as much as you would close read the gameplay experience or as much as you would close read the novel. Um, and this is just like a master class in how to do that, mm-hmm. um, how to pull someone else's argument kind of apart or show its kind of internal frictions or inconsistencies um, with, you know, just kind of effortlessly. It's, it's really, really well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think maybe two core ideas to explain with the introduction, because they filter out through the rest of the chapters, which we if we explain them here, we can just uh, gesture at them or use them to demonstrate what the later chapters are doing. Right. Uh, the first one is this idea of the supplement from Derrida. And then I think probably the second big one is the preview we get here of uh, the machine zone or is that what it was the zone of becoming is what he ends up calling it. Not the machine zone, because that's from a different book and it's much, much worse. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. The 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 machinic uh, within Deleuze and Guattari, they have this notion of the machinic mm-hmm. um, that has lots of like everything goes in Guattari. It has a lot of synonyms. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The, the supplement. And, and the machinic mm-hmm. um, are, are kind of two key terms here in the intro. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the supplement, uh, uh, as explained by Mukherjee, uh, is this way that Derrida has of talking about the relationship between uh, writing and language. 
Um, so, uh, I've talked about this recently on the Homestuck Made This World <laughs> bonus episodes for Detective Pony. Uh, but the traditional kind of understanding in philosophy is that, say, <clears throat> uh, in Plato, uh, Plato, uh, the philosopher, outlines this theory of language and writing as sort of opposed to one another, that language is kind of the um, better alternative to writing uh, because language is, like, quote-unquote, closer to the source, which is to mean the speaking subject. It's closer to, to life or whatever, uh, to the mind. Um, it's responsive, right? If you're talking to someone, uh, that person can respond in language immediately to what you're saying and that sort of thing. Uh, whereas writing is uh, lesser than. Uh, it is more stable or, like... Uh, uh, has maybe greater longevity, uh, but at the same time opens itself up to misunderstanding in more uh, uh, broad or multitudinous ways that makes it an inferior copy of the original, which is uh, the spoken word speech, um, you know, living language. That's kind of uh, uh, the platonic uh, setup there. And one of the things that Derrida famously does in the, esso, uh, the essay, uh, Plato's Pharmacy, uh, is... Uh, deconstruct that argument to show that uh, spoken and written language are in fact uh, uh, originary together, meaning like um, we there's a, a an assumption of a kind of metaphysics of priority in in Plato, right? That like uh, people came up with language, they had spoken language, and then writing came about as a kind of uh, supplement to language, right? This sort of second order thing. Um, but one of the things that Derrida kind of demonstrates uh, is that the supplement always uh, uh, picks away at the assumed stability of the thing that it is supplementing, right? That there is uh, uh, an absence in the uh, foundational thing that, in fact, the supplement uh, must exist in order to kind of uh, uh, shore up. So writing, uh, basically... Um, Written language, it, or it might seem very attractive to think that written language is more subjective or more manipulable than spoken language, but in fact, uh, spoken language is just as subject to uh, arbitrariness, to misunderstanding, uh, to this, that, and the other, in the same way that written language is, that they uh, are co-constitutive uh, with one another um, within like the, the broader uh, field of like what language is. And so how this applies for... Uh, Mukherjee in this book is taking the ludology and narratology debate, uh, where uh, on the narratology side, you know, video games have stories and we should, should or could like look at them primarily through their storytelling mechanisms, how they tell stories, how they might tell stories in the future. That on one side, that's Murray. Uh, and then looking at the uh, ludologist camp on the other, which is saying that games are primarily systems. Uh, games do not need narrative. In fact, uh, if we we're going to understand games at all, we have to kind of evacuate narrative from the picture. Um, and that's Arseth, but we also get uh, uh, other folks showing up here. Um, Yule is put a little bit on this side, Jesper Yule, and also uh, Eskalinen uh, and those folks. Uh, 
And what the Deridian move allows Mukherjee to do here is say, hey, guess what? Uh, game and story are supplementary to one another, right? That they are originary, that they actually like are uh, co-constitutive in the same way that like spoken and written language are, uh, that they are um, locked together or sort of uh, 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 you, you, you can't really think one without the other, even if you're thinking one by the explicit exclusion of the other. Uh, and so one of the things that he does that you were talking about, Cameron, of like closely reading arguments is, for instance, uh, like going through places where um, uh, Arseth, for instance, will say, hey, uh, there is like we don't have to really talk about narrative, right? Uh, the cybertext gets us out of or around narrative in some way. Uh, Arseth will then like work through a close reading or through a part of his argument. Uh, and then Mukherjee will take various uh bits and pieces of that argument and point out like look at all the places where even though Arseth has said he's not going to talk about narrative he is actually operating from the assumption that a narrative exists right right like in order to discuss what the system does he has to assume that there is a narrative that the game has that the system is generating yeah what is the uh it's the oh ideal reader I, I don't remember where that happens uh but there's a moment in the book where he's like Arseth you know, spend so much energy saying user, 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 user. Right, we should get rid actually, of the reader. Right, to get rid of the reader. But in actually explaining what is happening when one plays a video game, Arseth is forced either uh, on accident, right? If, you know, it just kind of ends up in the text because this is the, the thing, or Arseth has no other language to use other than this, right? Then uh, Arseth uses ideal reader in order to ex express basically how someone is guided through the, the daisy chain of actions in a game. Mm -hmm. um, and so Mukherjee's like, well, there you go, right? Like if this is the only word that expresses the thing, either on purpose or on accident, then that tells you something about this kind of co-constitutive relationship between game and narrative uh, that have been that people, at least historically within the ludology and narratology debate, have wanted to kind of cleave apart from one another. Um, even if it is supposedly a, a, a debate that never occurred. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, just beautifully done in that regard. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, uh, this is kind of the method of the book writ large, right? Is you, you start with kind of an overview. Uh, there's a lot of discussion of other people's writing and other people's positions in this book. It's um, uh, summative is not quite the right word, but uh, there's a lot of like, taking readings of various other people and sort of like working through them and knitting them together. Uh, but very often, uh, one of, uh, Shovik's moves is to identify a kind of binary like ludology and narratology, um, and then deconstruct that binary by way of Derrida. And then with the resulting kind of, uh, <laughs> uh, mess maybe, but, uh, there might be a better word there. Once that, once the uh, binary is deconstructed, what do you do? Well, Shovik, mm -hmm. uh, strains that through an apparatus, uh, from Deleuze and Guattari in order to arrive at a fuller understanding of what the, the situation of gameplay is. Uh, and that leads us into the, the zone of becoming, um, and sort of mm -hmm. the idea of the machine as it comes out of deluso guattarian theory yeah the the one thing i want to say about that before we talk about Dulles and guattari here briefly is that uh this this is uh mukherjee's first book mm -hmm. uh it appears i i mean i've pulled it up um in september 2008 mukherjee finished his dissertation or thesis because it's in the uk at nottingham trent mm. um uh for the phd 
it's got all the same chapter titles. Mm-hmm. So, uh, th- th- I mean, this reads like a dissertation book. That was my assumption. Yeah. But uh, it, it appears to to be the dissertation, you know, kind of edited into book form. Uh, and, you know, something that we've talked about a little bit uh, on, on the show over the uh, 50 some odd episodes we've done uh is you know there there are different ways to get at writing an academic book most people's first book is an edited version of their dissertation that's very normal um but a dissertation is a type of rhetorical document you know it a, a dissertation proves that you understand what your field is mm-hmm. and you understand how to intervene in it and that you have a sufficient knowledge of the kind of shape and form of that field. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it advances an argument, but I would say in the hierarchy of things that are evaluated in a dissertation or thought of in a dissertation, the originality of the argument is actually kind of like tertiary to the core concerns of what a dissertation is meant to do. Um, and to me, you know, it, I had the same feeling that that um, you did, Michael. It, there are big chunks of this book that are summative in that they are bringing together sometimes very disparate pieces of information and often quite older game studies you know mm-hmm. that game studies of the 80s and early 90s that i'm constantly talking about gary allen fine with. shows up in this book gary allen fine shows up uh the uh, uh review from the 60s of uh, uh the order it's not a review it's it's kind of a uh evaluating essay i forget the author's name but it's called like Homo Ludens Revisited. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's an article that's kind of come back into into favor recently. Uh, Mukherjee's dealing with that article here. You know, so there's some really great deep dive stuff in parts of game studies that I think are often over. Uh, tell me about machines. Uh, machines are, you, you know, as I said earlier, within Deleuze and Qatari, and, and I feel pretty confident about all of my statements about Deleuze and Qatari. Um, uh, you know, for for being a group of people, I really don't write about all that much. I do, I do know a lot about them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the machinic is another way of talking about what you were saying with with Derrida. Um, let me take one step back. the w- The way that Derrida gets to certain concepts, and the way that Deleuze and Guattari get to certain concepts, are very different. The historical trajectory and the historical philosophical trajectory of what must be true for their philosophical programs to exist is not the same. Um, so just just for clarity, for people going around in the world, um, when we talk about the Derridian supplement or when we talk about the, the Derridian kind of question of writing and speech, I'm about to say a lot of things that sound like that on the Deleuze and Guattari side. Those things are similar to one another. They are isomorphic to one another right mm-hmm. they are they are compatible they look the same they function similarly in the world the way you build them is very different you know it's like uh you know in the world when they uh when people say oh is it cake you know what i'm talking about the you know what I'm saying? Uh, I think I do, but you might have to give me just a little bit more context here because uh, mm-hmm. I feel like so, cake uh, has a lot of a lot of uh, applications in in the modern it, it does. vocabulary you're, you're right you're you're right you're right uh good good good, good looking out mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a phenomena on the internet of uh you see a coffee cup mm-hmm. okay you, you know mm-hmm. or you see a globe and then a knife comes off screen mm-hmm. it comes in and slices right through that holy shit that looked like a globe but it was cake mm-hmm. 
It's whole a globe, you know, that has all this, you know, a globe you spin around, you identify things on the planet. It has all this like whole series of plastic and wood and paint and human intervention to produce a thing that looks like a globe. And a cake has a very different trajectory, right? You know, there's flour and whatnot that gets you there. At the end of the day, the photorealistic globe that is in fact cake looks just like a globe. You can put it side by side with a globe and not know visually if it is cake or not. Mm -hmm. Okay? But when you intervene in it, when you actually look at the way it is constructed and you eat that delicious cake, you know that it is not cake. That's how philosophical concepts often work in game studies in particular, but often in media studies broadly. Which is that I think um, media studies scholars and game studies scholars, or I'm including within that, are often very comfortable taking two concepts with very different historical trajectories, very different ways of building them, and putting them um, in conversation with one another because the final product looks the same and speaks mm-hmm. to the same thing. So I'm saying all of that. I'm giving this delicious cake metaphor, only to say that the way that Derrida gets to his ideas around deconstruction have some similar application to the way that Deleuze and Guattari get to their kind of post-structuralist ideas about um, language, meaning, human intervention in the world. What does it mean to interact with things? What gets called the machinic here? Those end up looking the same. They are not the same. Mm-hmm. They are not equivalent to one another. Uh, they just kind of function the same in the world. So I say all of that to say the machinic is very similar um uh to what uh you were talking about with Derrida Michael in that uh, it is a way of talking about the way that uh, uh, uh assemblages which is kind of a key term for Deleuze and Guattari are made assemblages are really interesting as a concept they are things that are built out of combinatory parts and of the interactions of things that doesn't mean that someone has to put them together but uh, the famous example from Deleuze specifically that gets used across all of his work is the orchid and the wasp. Mm-hmm. Um, the orchid flower has sex organs that look like a wasp. And so a wasp will interact with it, will come into the flower and do the pollination. It will literally perform the sex act for the orchid because it sees a similarity of itself. And when they run into one another, these two very different organisms, you know, one one is a flower, one is an insect. They have entirely different trajectories of uh, evolution in the world, but they intersect with one another for, you know, over history and things like that. And when when the wasp runs into the orchid and does the work of performing reproduction for the orchid, um, it constitutes this kind of assemblage form. They are not; um, they don't create a synthesis with one another. Meaning, with the when the wasp runs into the orchid, they don't become one organism, mm-hmm. right? That are inextricable from one another. They're not synthetic. Um, they are combinatory, and importantly, they are combinatory in a variable form. Meaning that any wasp of that particular genus that performs the pollination from the for the orchid, any wasp can come and do that work. Any component can plug into this assemblage. Similar for the wasp, that, or for the orchid. That wasp can go from orchid to orchid and have the same kind of experience, the same kind of um, uh, connective capacity um, uh, uh, in order to, to, to do this pollination with all the orchids down the row, right? And so, you know, this is not the, the only example of, assemb- of, of assemblages, but it's a really helpful one because it points out that assemblages are... Uh, multiple you, you they're heterogeneous. They are made of things that are different from one another. 
and they are uh, non-synthetic. So they can they form and then they pull apart again. They connect and then they disconnect. Um, and it is the capacity for things in the world. I mean, Deleuze is a monist, right? So everything is a is is a one, mm-hmm. is a thing in the world. You know, it's all one uh, substance, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of that, right, this is Deleuze's way and Deleuze and Guattari's way, uh, eventually when they work together, it's their way of expressing how do things work in the world, right? Like, what is the the name we give for how things come together and fall apart and don't constantly kind of meld into this kind of meta mass, but produce processes that uh, happen and in any kind of given location or things like that. Mm-hmm. And the machinic is just the word for that. Machinic is is a word for what happens when um, uh, the the two or, or multiple entities interact with with one another in this kind of experience or thing passes across them. Right. Um, like like I said, the uh, machinic is a synonym, um, and it is a synonym for a particular kind of becoming. You know, the the way that I tell people to read Deleuze and Guattari, if you're going to read Deleuze and Guattari, is to just begin looking at similar processes, isomorphic processes, um, when they talk about states doing things and when they talk about wasps doing things, they they will use different language for that. But the language they are using is synonymous with one another because they're kind of trying to create this kind of map system of meta interactions, right? Mm-hmm. How do things run into one another and kind of connect on a, on a broader philosophical um uh, plane or perspective right right and uh so you know that that's the key thing is like machinic is ultimately truly a synonym for becoming mm-hmm. um and becoming here does not mean literally becoming when i say i'm you know becoming ant it doesn't mean i'm turning into an ant although there are fun examples of things like that in Guattari. becoming means uh this kind of connective capacity right you, you are transferring or maneuvering onto or or warping yourself or warping the thing in order to create this kind of connective affective capacity. I mean, affective in the kind of uh, philosophical sense, not in the like emotional sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this kind of ephemeral connection that occurs um, that that then we you know have to kind of uh, develop language for. Mm-hmm. So for Deleuze and Guattari, it is not. This is the last thing I'll say about this. And I've been talking <laughs> for a long time. But this, I think this gives a good perspective for the rest of the book. And, and for, for whatever reason, Mukherjee doesn't really get into it. Um, for Deleuze and Guattari, what is critical is not individual actors running around in the world. Um, they are not particularly interested in heroic individuals. They are not particularly interested in unique, special things in the world. Because for them, overwhelmingly... Uh, the world as it is experienced and as a symbol just form in the world, as things touch one another in the world, it is about populations. Um, and, and populations is what allows for this kind of heterogeneity to exist that I was talking about. And so what, what, a, what I mean by that and what they mean by that is that the world operates by lots of things that are similar to one another you know, human beings as an apparatus, you know, as, as this kind of population thing or particular types of human beings or particular uh, cultures of human beings, things like that, right? Interacting with things that are of a population with one another. So PlayStation 5s, mm-hmm. Nintendos, whatever, you know, Nintendo Switches, wh- whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what's crucial about the kind of Delizagratarian perspective uh, that Mercury really uh, hones in on, I think, here is that that they want to be able to speak to 
the general scenario and not always the specific scenario. Mm -hmm. What happens when wasps and orchids interact with one another? What happens when human beings play PlayStations? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can always get into the specifics there, right? Not all humans play the same way. Not everyone has the same uh, physical capability to interact in the same way. Uh, Not all PlayStations operate the same way, although there is a kind of uh, capitalist desire to make them all operate the same way. Um, You know, it's not to say you can't focus in on those things, and, and they do in the work. But from their kind of larger and broader perspective, they were really interested in what are the general um, uh, rules is not the right word, but methods or uh, uh, protocols through which I mean, that's what Galloway ends up calling them. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, What are the protocols and methods through which these things interact with one another? Um, And what are the outputs of it? You know, the output of the the orchid and the wasp is that the orchid gets pollinated and the wasp is fed. Right. Mm-hmm. There are direct and clear outputs for that. What are the outputs then for the pollinative um, uh, relation between the human and the video game? Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, that's that's what Mukherjee's getting to. I think Mukherjee does a really good job of kind of um, operating those things together in a, in a powerful way. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry to monologue for a very long time, but. Now we've got the background and we can talk about the chapters. Yeah. Well, uh, so section one called Machine. uh, Then chapter two, Machine Stories, the Literature Machine, Technicity, and the Computer Game. Uh, And I think this will add some, I think, crucial clarity to some of the things that you've just said, because I think a common uh, misreading of Deleuze and Guattari when they're talking about machines is to misapprehend the word machine as meaning something particularly mechanical, mechanistic, or uh, uh, basically technological. Um, And obviously that's not the case in in a situation where you have something like an orchid and a wasp. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, those are not machines. No, machine uh, for Deleuze and Guattari could uh, include what we in everyday language think of as machines, like your PlayStation 5. Um, uh, but just if you're wondering, like, why is the word machine being used here then, uh, it is helpful to think about, uh, what we think of as machines, typically, let's say a car engine or something, um, as something that we know, like, you, you know, a, a, a car engine is not, uh, one unified thing. It has components, it has pieces, it has parts, and those things have to uh, work together in a certain way for the machine to do what the machine is is supposed to do, you know, make your car go. Um, so that's really the, the way to think about machines, not as uh, explicitly or necessarily technological and mechanistic, but as about uh, a way of describing... Um, uh, like unities is maybe not the best word, but like uh, uh, things that we can recognize as uh, uh, pieces interacting with one another, right? Uh, of as you as you gestured at Cameron, kind of like about mm-hmm. these situations. Uh, and so for machinic stories, one of the things that's important in this chapter for uh, Mukherjee is to point out that, uh, and this is another thing that I love about this book. Just by the way, um, that okay. So we're talking about video games and narrative. Those those might be machinic. We have no problem thinking about those as machinic because we've got computers on the scene. We've got our PlayStation 5, whatever. Uh, but one of the things that Mukherjee is trying to peel back here 
is that uh, literature and stories in kind of their first instance are already are already machinic, right? I almost said potentially mm -hmm. machinic, but that's not even true, right? They just already are machinic uh, in the sense that, uh, and he goes to, oh, uh, after my own heart, right? He goes to Leah Marcus writing about uh, Machiavelli when he's in exile, uh, talking about how uh, he goes out and he works in his garden, in his field, whatever. Um, and then when the day ends, he goes into his library and he uh, engages in discourse with all of these voices from the past, right? That there is a, a, a kind of um, a machine there where Machiavelli understands himself as a reader of non-digital texts, right? Straight up like mm -hmm. <laughs> 15th century books, Uh as he understands himself as, and this is an important deluso Guattariad word here, uh, as plugging into um, a kind of assemblage, right? A kind of a canon for Machiavelli of these other thinkers, these other writers, and being exposed to their ideas and having their ideas influence him and having that influence then reflected back into his reading process as he continues to like read and develop new ideas about the world. Mm -hmm. So that's like the, the old, old example um, uh, but the other things that happen here, uh, that I think are interesting just as a, a little greatest hits thing, um, again, like working through Arseth and kind of the concept of ergodicity, um, uh, in Catherine Haley's on, uh, media specific analysis, this idea that, uh, uh, I think is actually probably pretty important in the contemporary media ecosystem, um, where stories are treated as, uh, things that exist across media unproblematically. Um, you know, you can read your your Final Fantasy wiki and get an idea of the story, and that's the same story that you're going to get if you play the Final Fantasy game. Uh, in Catherine Haley's, uh, zooms in here and says, no, uh, like the uh, the video game is a specific uh, technology, a specific medium that is going to communicate that story in different ways and is therefore going to... Uh, facilitate certain understandings, certain interpretations uh, over others, whereas a wiki is going to be a kind of uh, summary, uh, maybe based on the video game, but maybe it's also going to incorporate citations to, like, uh, uh, supplementary materials like, uh, uh, you know, press write-ups or something that's written on the website that provides, like, lore that isn't present textually in the game, something like that. So uh, this interest in looking at uh, how a specific type of thing is going to communicate whatever narrative that it has to communicate. Um, I think that's uh, uh, really cool. I like that. And then we also get here our first kind of overview of Deleuze and Guattari on Kafka and this idea of um, minor literatures and textual multiplicities. Yeah, uh, it really, I, this comes up throughout the book, right? The, basically, the difference between minor and major literatures for them is not, you know, as Mukherjee is very careful to say here, right? Minor literature is not literature made by minoritized people or something like that, right? Minor literatures are these kind of escape um, uh, maneuvers from the way that things are talked about or represented. They're basically aberrations within speech, and they're aberrations within speech that are able to get at something or express something that the major language cannot. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, so, you know, they're this kind of... Um, I, and Guattari are careful not to use this language, but I think it's helpful. You know, it's a kind of radical break. Mm -hmm. with what what is happening in the broader set of cultures now 
Uh, Dills and Guattari become a little bit more complicated when you start thinking about where we live, you know, in 2022, as opposed to when they lived, or, or I mean, I mean, they are both dead, but when they were writing these kinds of things in particular, which is the 1960s and 70s, um, in which the kind of broad uh, monoculture uh, was so in, in you know, ingrained and they are living in France. They are French. Um, so you can think about something like, you know, the the French national what is the it's the the library mm-hmm. uh, uh, in France that like codifies what are the canonical pieces of French literature, things yeah. like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So when, when they talk about major literatures, you know, or major languages, uh, what they are talking about is the the kind of canonized and official statement that, that stands in for the people and that stands in for the state form itself. Right. Um, and so Proust, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like Proust stands in for Frenchness. Um, in the United States, uh, Mark Twain stands in for Americanness, um, and so are there. Uh, for them, they they kind of create this kind of um, method for working through. Uh, well, if there are things that change, right? If if interruptions occur, or if different processes occur within that, well, where do they emerge from, right? Like, where does uh, crucially, this is not resistance. This is not kind of any kind of necessarily liberatory political form. This is just spurning the 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 major, mm-hmm. right? Spurning the mono, spurning the dominant. Um, so if there are ways of weaseling around that or getting or or uh, subordinating it or de- detouring it or something like that, where do they come from? So so one of them, and they're the kind of most famous one. They wrote a whole little short book about it. Is Kafka, right? So Kafka does this kind of work to take say the systems that he lived within uh so the metamorphosis a, a fellow turns into a bug um or in the trial the trial is probably the most famous in terms of this reading um but but looks at you know the the kind of massive machines uh these massive processes and systems that he lives within and says well what if language could be toward to make these things um, horrifying, confusing, distal, strange. Uh, so, you know, the trial is about a man who's put on trial for a thing that he does not know. Mm-hmm. You know, he does not know what he's done. He has no concept of what, what has occurred here. And nevertheless, the system pulls him in and eats him, um, no no matter his knowledge or not. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's this, it's, it is in fact Kafkaesque. Uh, and the metamorphosis is a similar thing, right? In the sense that he turns into a bug and it's about the processes of the family continuing to happen, even if you're a giant bug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, so, you know, that's the thing is like the minor language, um, takes the kind of, uh, spe- speech possibilities, right? The way of engaging with the world that are supported by the major systems that we live in and then bends them, turns them, does something else with them in order to, um, well, the outcome is actually kind of ambivalent, but process-wise, it ends up kind of breaking them down, uh, maneuvering them, manipulate them, eating them into other systems. Now, that doesn't mean that that can't be uh, absorbed by the major system, and more often it is, because Mukherjee uses the example of Shakespeare here. Mm -hmm. Yes. I thought I'd tee you up with Shakespeare. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Do people want me to talk about Shakespeare? Uh, people always want you to talk about Shakespeare. Yeah. Well, I mean, Shakespeare is a great example because, uh, yeah, he is um, uh, someone who is we, we think of Shakespeare as great literature. 
right? Uh, uh, I say that, you know, pretty loosely in these days, at least. But I think there's some way in which Shakespeare still stands in for this idea of like capital L literature, timelessness, Mm -hmm. the canon, what have you. Um, But in his own context, Shakespeare is a working artist who is writing stuff for the company so they can make money and get paid. And he is intentionally kind of uh, thwarting what are the... um, the dictates of like high culture of his time, uh, which are largely being formulated by the uh, uh, monarchy and the aristocrats, particularly uh, uh, aristocrats who are, you know, it would be improper for most monarchs to engage in in their own uh, literary pursuits. Um, so uh, there's this like excavated classical tradition that says things like you should never have uh, a king and a fool on the stage at the same time, right? Because to do so undermines the honor of uh, royalty um, by, you know, putting them next to uh, this clown figure. And of course, like one of Shakespeare's most famous plays, King Lear, is all about a king running around with his fool right beside him. Uh, and the fool does all these little jokes and, uh, some of them, most of them aren't particularly funny, but nevertheless, that's what's going on. Uh, and there's like an appeal there to, um, and this is how this is generally read, right? As, a like Shakespeare is not appealing to the aristocrats because they aren't really the people who are coming to the theater. It's like the tradesmen, the middle class, and in particularly like the, uh, uh, the working class, um, and they want to see uh, silly things happen in front of the king, or they want to see, like, Baudry and, and this, that, and the other, but they also, also want the, like, grand emotion of your classical tragedy, and so Shakespeare uh, is often understood as this figure who uh, very successfully um, managed to uh, take all of these kind of disparate uh, perspectives uh, of that were, like, coming out of uh, uh, early modern London social life, um, and weave stories that could capture the interest of uh, different segments of that audience uh, in ways that, as, as other scholars have uh, argued, um, led to the formation of a national identity, right? Like, we all, uh, uh, we, we may come from different walks of life here in London, but at the end of the day, we all, we all love a good Shakespeare play, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So this uh, minoritarian position um, over time uh, gets subsumed into a, uh, frankly, like the, the machine of imperialism, right? Uh, mm-hmm. cause that's, yeah. that's what ends up happening is once, uh, once, uh, Britain kicks off, uh, one of the main planks is we've got to go to other countries, uh, subordinate those populations and teach them Shakespeare so they know what real art is. Yeah. And Dolores and Guattari have a word for that. It's called the apparatus of capture. Mm-hmm. Um, a- effective minor literatures, are are captured mm-hmm. uh, that this is in fact i mean for, for them this is how capitalism works mm-hmm. capitalism works by producing um and creating the conditions under which minor literatures appear and then eating them and then using them as weapons mm-hmm. uh, you know that that's kind of the thing this is crucially why i've been so careful in all of this to be like well it's not really liberatory it's not really you know it's not uh, quote unquote good it's not progressive anything like that Deleuze and Guattari set out to describe, much like Marx, right? They set out to describe what are the operations of capital. Um, And they get there in a very roundabout way. But but crucially, right, major and minor is not like minor is the good and major is the bad, right? It describes a process, right? How does something emerge within a condition that is so totalizing, dominant, whatever? Um, And uh, so, so, yeah. But the interesting part about it and where Mukherjee goes with it is uh, exactly as you were saying in the Shakespeare example, right? That 
but because of the, the wide variability of what it means to play a game, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that the the San Andreas example that opens the book is part of this too, right? That um, when I play a game, I interact with this kind of bigger system and the way that Kafka interacted with the kind of uh, larger set of languages, the dominant language of his time, the major literature of his time, I interact with all these things, but actually I do all kinds of stuff that I want to do, right? Like I... I go in a uh, play in a particular kind and Mukherjee does a lot of work here to talk about the different ways that other people have spoken about what, what it means to play, right? What does it do? Uh, but you wrote this in your notes, um, quote, the collective, when, when one plays, quote, the collective enunciation is achieved with text, technology, mind, body, and the senses expressing themselves within the machinic assemblage. The computer game narrative is therefore a minor literature. Um, and so what's interesting about it is that you know, historically, you know, the way Shakespeare is a minor literature, Kafka is a minor literature. But what's fascinating, I think, for Mukherjee about what goes on with video games is that uh, the fact that there is no stable text, which is what makes Arseth kind of reject this out of hand, and the fact that there is such kind of uh, guided experience, which is what makes Murray basically say, you know, that's why we need the cyberbard. For her, the fact that there that it isn't fully adaptive that isn't fully agential, that's why we need the better version of it that, you know, that totally conforms to you and your desires. Mm-hmm. Um, for Mukherjee, the reason that Dalism Guattari and the reason that minor literature is helpful here is that it speaks to um, larger processes that are guided and kind of out of your hands, you know, the, the way that literature functions, the way that language functions, and the way that gameplay functions. But it also has these massive opportunities for kind of detouring that and doing what you want within it uh, in producing, you know, sometimes wildly um, critical or self-reflective or whatever moments, right, is ultimately minor. It is not always reuptakeable within the system itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what makes it minor. You know, it, it basically every time that you play a video game, you are doing your own kind of Kafka, <laughs> right? You know, you're writing the metamorphosis every time. Right. Um. And some of those become, we can see, he you know, he doesn't play this out, but we can see that process happening, right? Like some types of play become canonical. Yes. Um, some forms of engaging with games is canonical. You know, yeah. think about the way that Dark Souls is talked about well, in a broad sense, yeah, right? Yeah. He does He yeah. does kind of play this out a little bit. It requires us to jump to the end of the book, but he starts talking about, like, right. this is this is what walkthroughs do. Right. right. It, yeah, and, the, and after action reports uh-huh. and all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. He, he plays it out through an example. But even here, I mean, you, you know, reading the book, I was like, oh, yeah, like, of course, mm-hmm. um, you know, it gets canonized. But um, we, we did spend a minute on this. But also, this is kind of a both this and the next chapter are kind of subtending arguments that continue through the whole book. So it'll, it'll buy us a little bit of time later on. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings us into uh, chapter three, which is reading the machinic game narrative. And reading here is a uh, uh, a neologistic pun where uh, it is written W-R-E-A-D-I-N-G, but the W is in parentheses because it is both Mm -hmm. writing and reading simultaneously. And this is an elaboration on um, this idea that, well, I'm just going to quote this from page 48. The game mm-hmm. constitutes a text that is read by the user. So you playing the game, right? You you apprehend the situation that the game lays in front of you. You read it. You apprehend it um, by the user, which in turn reads the user because in response to what you've done, uh, 
you or you you make choices based on your understanding of the game and then the game itself responds to the choices that you've made <clears throat> uh so which in turn reads the user by making artificially intelligent responses to the user's actions the text in question combines the program code and the story in an originary relationship and here this is another kind of like um a uh, way of showing that the uh, distinction that, say, lots of ludologists want to make, that if you want to understand a game, you, you forget whatever story is happening on the surface. You have to look at the code and you have to look at the mechanics and you have to figure out how those things work together and, like, structure user action. Uh, again, this is originary for Mukherjee that... Uh, the story and the, the the story and the mechanics like need each other, right? They are necessary for each other. One of the examples that he gives later uh, in this chapter actually is like, if if the technical execution uh, was all that mattered, then Doom Three would have been considered a great game. No one would have given a damn that the story was bad, and yet that was roundly the way that Doom Three was discussed as like a technical achievement that is undercut by a lack of narrative originality or imagination this is where i'm looking at your notes this is where uh the thing i was talking about earlier with arseth about the kind of close reading of arseth against himself this is where that happens yeah uh arseth i, I think actually explicitly so the the reading neologism with the w in parentheses is taken from someone else i don't remember the name because i didn't write it in my notes but it's another theorist that uh Mukherjee borrows that from and then i think it's someone that arseth uh, specifically like pulls in also and then dismantles saying that this is insufficient mm -hmm. it's inadequate um for our seth right there is the the player of the game is not a writer that's absurd right um except uh by the end as mukherjee points out uh our seth has this line where he talks about how so you know even like the 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 user of the game uh, gave inputs that made the game's events happen happen in a particular order rather than uh, some other order, right? Like that's that's the nature of the game that these events can happen in whatever order, and they happen in kind of the the order is responsive to the choices that the player makes. Mm -hmm. Um, and so Arseth kind of says like, you know, this, this really doesn't matter. It's really just kind of the, the reader's signature in the game. And Mukherjee points out like, why is the word signature happening here? Like, is that not a type of writing? The thing that Arseth said originally that the, uh, player of the game is not doing. Yeah. Like this book's full of that. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, uh, and that's, you know, one of the other things, uh, uh, pointing back to the previous chapter, um, with Machiavelli and everything, this is another thing that I really appreciate about, uh, this whole book, quoting from page 72 here, um, the, the point here is to, quote, illustrate how these new technologies, instead of totally metamorphosing textuality, express more clearly some key realizations about textuality that have always existed, but have been simplified or become minor, that's in a little scare quotes, because of literary traditions that failed to account for them and therefore ignored them. So like the aleatory element in reading has historically been uh, ignored in like literary studies um, because literary studies has this orientation toward a kind of like stable identity of the text that basically everyone comes to and has a, a more or less similar experience with. Um, and uh, the what Mukherjee is trying to point out there is that actually reading experiences, even when they were just like bare bones texts, are always extremely variable based on like the situation of the person who is reading them. Where are they from? What do they already know? What the, what have they read already that makes things uh, 
uh, familiar to them or will make certain elements of the text appear strange. Um, and we can even get, you know, deeper here talking about like what is uh, uh, the textual apparatus of production here. Are we talking about books, scrolls, uh, uh, whatever? Um, anyway. Um, one of the things that uh, Mukherjee wants to point out is that uh, video games take things that were already latent in textuality and move them to kind of the center of the production of of the game narrative and the game text. Uh, and it's so it's not so much that like games are wholly new; it's that they have taken a an older form and reworked it in such a way to place elements of uh, those forms uh, in the center in ways that they weren't centered before. That brings us into section two, reading games and playing books, gameplay and storytelling. Uh, more on the point of this, uh, all of these ideas being sort of older in text. Uh, we begin with uh, 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 Calvino's Castle of Crossed Destinies, which uses uh, tarot cards as kind of um, uh, generative prompts for stories that characters tell. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. a way. This Italian devil, yep. Italo Calvino. He's always here. <laughs> he's always here making me mad. <laughs> uh, but for Mukherjee, he's really important because like uh, that, the, the tarot card example shows us that literature uh, or storytelling is always already machinic. Right. If you can mm. if you can take a deck of cards with a bunch of symbols on them and then like draw three cards at random and then tell a story about those cards. Uh, there's a machine system going on there where the, the, you know, the, uh, the, the deck of cards, uh, provides these prompts that you then respond to and like create a narrative based on. Um, so mm -hmm. then this moves into a, uh, a big reread of Huizinga and Calois, uh, in particular, their kind of uptake in game studies of the nineties and the two thousands, uh, and also a critique of them, not just their desire to structuralize play that we've talked about extensively in the episodes on those, uh, folks, you can go check them out. Um, but also their shared idea that play is, uh, I can't remember if it's Kalwa or Hozinga who says this, um, but it's a great way of, uh, talking about it. Um, uh, talking about play as an ornamentation of everyday life. I think that might be Kalwa. Um, that the idea being that like humans live, right. Or, or people or, or beings, whatever live, they have a life, uh, and play is a name for a thing that is like, a. A little bit of it's like if, if life is a cake to go back to our overriding metaphor, uh, then play is the icing, right? It's like a little bit of sweetness, mm -hmm. this little thing extra that we get in our hard life of uh, uh, suffering and labor. Um, this is also the perspective of uh, uh, suits in in the grasshopper, incidentally, uh, that play is is gratuitous. It's this uh, unnecessary thing. Um, and then Mukherjee goes into Derrida again uh, to talk about uh, Derridian play uh, and to sort of reorient our understanding of play as not an ornament to life, but as a supplement to it, again, in the Derridian sense, that play is also a kind of productive field uh, that is co-constitutive with like life and labor or what we think of as labor. Yeah, the uh, I, I love the way this argument goes. And honestly, if you're going to teach Huizinga uh, or Kalwa and you're going to do a little unit on these things, this is such a great way of of introducing complication to that. Mm -hmm. Because Mukherjee, you know, the maneuver here is great. It's to say, it's to do with the close reading of Huizinga and Kalwa, sometimes charitable, sometimes not. You know what I mean? I think it's a pretty fair and balanced, as it were, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, reading of the thing. 
But then to say, hey, look, isn't it interesting how they both need play to be outside of society? Right. For it to work. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it, it has to be extraneous ornamentation, as you said. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you know who also talks about the falseness of things being inside and outside? It's our good friend Jacques Derrida. You know, <laughs> there's this kind of maneuver that happens where it's like the the ultimately for both of them. And, and uh, he's not using these words, but this is, you know, the way I'm reading it. They both have a structuralist impulse to them. Um, and, and that makes sense, right? Hozinga's right before then or right before the massive uptake. Kawa's right in the middle of it. They, they and especially Kawa's like uh, anthropological theory work that he's engaging with, they, they're all structuralists or proto-structuralists. Um, they both have a structuralist impulse. What if we took the critique of structuralism that Derrida does and just apply it to games, you know, apply it to these two people and the way they do it, here's what happens. And then and he just does it um, and does it really well. Um, and so, you know, mechanically, uh, you know, I've tried to teach Derrida before to, to students in a game studies context. Uh, I wouldn't say that goes super well. They don't have a good sense of why it matters, which is makes sense. It's hard to it's hard to put some stakes on that. Sometimes this does a really good job of putting stakes on. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I could I could say that this would teach really well alongside those other things. It gives students some interesting ways of thinking about, well, Hey, is the thing that is supposedly excluded? What if it constitutes the other thing? Um, you know, what what if it defines it entirely, and what if it's within it the whole time? Well, you know, what what if we were playing the whole time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what what if uh, what if the globe were a cake the whole time? <laughs> the cake is a globe. To bring it wow. back to the gamers, yeah, the gamers want uh-huh. that. They want to know if the cake is a globe. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Uh. But yeah, that's kind of what's up in the chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, next chapter then is called Shape Shifting Stories, reading video games, uh, reading video game stories through paratexts. Uh, and this is uh, where what I said earlier happens. This is where he points out that things like uh, after action reports, uh, walkthroughs and let's plays uh, become ways of. So to back up actually a little bit, uh Cameron and I can sit down and we can both play Grand Theft Auto San Andreas Uh, and we can have in some ways very similar experiences, but we can also have very different experiences. Uh, Mm -hmm. All of those experiences are like potential within the game itself. Uh, the game itself has like a multiplicity of narrative outcomes within it or narrative experiences within it. Uh, and after action reports, let's plays, walkthroughs and things of that nature uh, become methods by which the uh, multiplicity of games is uh, communicated or like uh, uh, inscribed, right? Like the the. Um, ways that like a certain way of playing a game can become canonical after like enough people throw their face against Dark Souls enough that you uh, get a a knowledge base for people to start assembling like, you know, powerful builds or preferred uh, routes and things of that nature. Um, So the the point here is not that like the after action report, the let's play or the walkthrough is like the reading of the game. It's what's more important is that these things exist again in a supplementary relation with the game itself uh, that they uh, and like the the variety of the after action report, let's play walkthrough um, are part of the multiplicity of the game. What's so fascinating to me about that is that. Uh, the way that all of these things kind of get eaten, which is such a cool uh, kind of other illustration as you were talking about mm-hmm. uh, earlier, right? So like 
we can both play Grand Theft Auto and have different experiences, but Grand Theft Auto Five came out and then turned into characters all the different ways of playing Grand Theft Auto. Right. Right. Like, you know, it is absorbed within the kind of of, of major work or or it is um, uh, what gets called within Duels and Quartari, it gets stratified, right? So it kind of gets gridded out and kind of gets uh, programmatized. Um, the other thing I think about here, too, is that uh, within contemporary video games, right, tutorialization has kind of died out in a lot of different genres with the idea that after action reports or what they, they might have called after action reports before, um, but let's play work or just uh, the fan labor of people playing the game, someone will create sufficient enough tutorials. I've played many video games at this point that have a link in a menu that just takes you to a YouTube video of some other human being playing the game uh, that, that's not related to to the production whatsoever. Uh, but it's just a good kind of fan made tutorial mm-hmm. of the thing. And so that's why I thought about here, too, is how these things kind of get uptaken um, by by the thing. Uh, this made me think about Machul Rimrit. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You, uh, you know, the, in a general sense, the I probably read, you know, that's that's Kevin Snow's work, Brave Mule. Mm-hmm. Um, this, that's their kind of what, what gets called an after-action report here, but uh, I forget what, what Kevin calls it. Um, look it up. I, ha- I have it here. Hold on. I got it in, on my screen. Uh, they use an interesting word, a let's play story, mm. a game experience documented in a work of fiction. Um, but it's a similar deal. And I read probably what's the other one? It's like murder boat or whatever. Oh, yes. <laughs> Is that what it's called? I think murder so. Boat? That sounds familiar. No, not the murder bot diaries. Hold on. Let's see. Dwarf fortress boat. Boat. Boat murdered. There we go. That's the other one. But I read these before I'd ever tried to boot up. Dwarf Fortress and probably my my actual understanding of these games is just okay well I I, I read these other narratives these other like LP-ish things about these games so I kind of know what's going on in them you know I mean I've played Dwarf Fortress but uh, for a long time I had not played Dwarf Fortress and I just knew it by these things um, and I think these kinds of stories are like a big on road for most people into understanding like what happens in Dwarf Fortress and how does it happen uh-huh. um, and so it's it's interesting to me how the these things that are you know cr- crucial here right uh, Dolz and Guattari and, and Derrida too right they are not looking for this is like the, the they are not looking for liberation mm-hmm. in terms of they are not their concepts and ideas are not identifying places where human beings become more free or overthrow oppression. Their ideas can be used to do that. But a, a way these things are taught often is like uh, is by reproducing the thing that they were responding to, which is like the structuralist impulse to put things in highly gridded lines in both Derrida and Dillis and Guattari through very different directions worked very hard to highlight how processes occur that are much more complicated than we think they are, that things don't directly fall into kind of Manichaean categories. Um, and that knowing those processes and knowing how to intervene in them is actually the critical work, mm-hmm. right? Like, de- as I said in the Detective Pony episode, right? Like, deconstruction has an ethics, uh, but it's an ethics that is outside of the method itself, right? The method doesn't produce ethics for you. Right. Um, the same with Dolism Qatari, the method does not produce ethics for you. It gives you a way of looking at how the world functions, how it actually works, so that then you can go do the work you want to do in it. Um, uh, and I, 
just, you know, that this is my eternal kind of thing I have to push on with this, uh, you know, uh, deterritorialization, minor literature, line of flight. That is not another word for like uh, liberation. Mm-hmm. That That is just a thing that describes a, a thing that occurs. And so what's interesting to me about this is that everything that Mukherjee says about these LPs or after action reports is correct in the way that they kind of structure experience, perhaps in ways that get us out of the domination of the game machine, Mm -hmm. but they can also help plug us right back into the domination of the game machine. Right. Yeah. Part three story with uh, chapter six absence of an ending, uh, telos and time in narrative video games. One of the big, uh, kind of tent poles of Mukherjee's thinking and I don't think this is uh, incorrect, but it's interesting because it's, uh, I mean, so one of the things that I find really delightful and refreshing about this book is like the directness with which it will uh, approach just things that I have also been thinking. So saying like in regards to ludology versus narratology, hey, uh, these things are supplementary to one another, right? Just coming out and saying that and like giving the Deridian theory that backs it up and and like that's great because that's also a thing that I have thought that like really these things work together. Um, here, it's a very similar move where Mukherjee says or or sort of a, a claims, implies or, or uh, the take, right, is that One of the reasons people have had such a difficult time thinking about narrative in video games and talking about it, and this happens on uh, both sides, right, both ludology and narratology, Um, it's a, a, for the ludologists, it ends up being ammunition against the idea that games contain stories. Uh, For the narratologists, it becomes this kind of uh, unfortunate wrinkle that they have to develop systems to to work around. Um, The problem is that video games have multiple endings. That's it. Like that is that Mm -hmm. like that small thing introduces a huge snarl of complications for uh, people on both sides of of that debate. Um, And Mukherjee walks through how like, yeah, this this is kind of a problem for traditional modes of understanding narrative. uh, But in in kind of the typical maneuver uh, points to literature like traditional literature from the past uh that also has uh repetitions and uh multiple endings built into it and not just things like you know choose your own adventure stories um although those do do come up uh mm-hmm. but uh things like uh John Fowles's novel The French Lieutenant's Woman that literally just ends like three times in a row and then the narrator is like pick whichever one of these that makes you happiest because obviously you didn't like my first ending um Damn. right <laughs> it's a great book um <laughs> uh but uh so you know, uh, uh, again, like the the crucial intervention here is not that video games have completely remade what narrative is, uh, but they have introduced techniques by which a, a desire for multiple endings or for kind of uh, repetitious narratives with different outcomes that is already latent in traditional literature can be actualized uh, in, in a more like straightforward, closer to the surface, uh, dramatically, uh, in a sense of like performance and drama sense. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so I, I think that's really cool. Uh, one of the big, uh, things here is, uh, Prince of Persia, the sands of time, which is, uh, a game like the, uh, it's pretty old now. God, what was that? Like 2003, 
Yeah, it's a PS2 game. So uh, uh, one of the the big things about that game that is really important here is that even as the game is like being presented as a flashback that is being narrated by the protagonist, uh, and I'm sure we've talked about this before, but uh, there are points in the game where like, you know, he enters a new level. And then you get, like, voiceover narration from him telling you the story, so it's uh, uh, set up entirely in kind of this retrospective way. Um, And then uh, whenever you die as you're playing the game, the narrator says, like, well, that's not how it happened. And then you can reverse the flow of time, get back to your starting point, and, like, play through it again. Uh, so rather than the impulse to, like, split these out and say, like, well, there's a system undergirding this, here's how, like, all of the mechanics work, and then there's a story on top of it that has to, like, scramble in a, uh, in some way to, like, try to make it make sense, uh, Mukherjee takes the, uh, prince's kind of oral storytelling device, um, as kind of the stand-in for, like, the game, like, the artificial intelligence system of the game narrating itself, Right, that, that that this is a way of telling stories of being like, well, actually, that's not how it happened. This thing that I told you was wrong. Let's back up and go back to this other point before before we got there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, really cool. There's a lot of engagement here with like uh, theorists of time and narrative, particularly Kermode. Uh, 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 we get also um, some readings of Delanda, uh, Bogost. Uh, all sorts of folks, but all all to this point that um, uh, Telos is not lost in games, because this is one way of taking it. Telos here means, you know, end goal, end point, whatever. And the traditional understanding of your story it is that it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And this is a, an Aristotelian idea of story in uh, a fairly narrow one, right? It's, it's, it's good for Aristotle. It's accurate for what Aristotle wants to do and what Aristotle is talking about. Um, but it is maybe inaccurate to apply this idea of story to what video games do, which become, uh, or which actualize the potential for stories that has always been latent in them to be multi-telic, to have multiple endings or multiple points of ending. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, Halo Reach. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't. It's got a telos to it. It does. (sighs) The oh, I was gonna say about that. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Playing in the zone of becoming one agency and becoming in video games, it's chapter seven. Mm-hmm. This is a deep read on uh, a claim from Alexander Galloway's book, Gaming, which uh, we have another episode about. If you haven't heard it, you can go back and listen to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a sort of deep read on the way that Galloway uh, employs the idea from Deleuze of the action image. Yeah, I, this is a little in the weeds on on like Deleuze's work in the uh, cinema books. That's mm-hmm. where it kind of starts. But then it kind of progresses its way again to what was kind of in the last chapter a little bit, right? This notion of telos and where we're going. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, it's about kind of giving some video game specificity to that argument, I would say. And so there's this close reading of the Blade Runner video game that mm-hmm. occurs uh, that is basically, you know, I'd never really thought about this, but the Blade Runner video game, the point and click adventure game kind of does the cyberbard thing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it as one interacts with the world, and Mukherjee's making this argument. This is not me making or saying this, but the as one plays the game, it morphs around you. If you play that game, asserting that uh, 
One should be kind to replicants. It turns you into a replicant narratively. You, you're going to work yourself toward an ending in which that is canonical. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're executing them and and being a real Deckard about it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to turn you into a human who is executing the thing. And both of those endings are parallel. You know, they are both true up until the point that they um, they trigger, right? You know, mm-hmm. and then one is chosen over the other based on the actions that you take. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh Mukherjee is using that as a way of kind of exploring both uh Deleuze and the way that um the action image operates and then kind of uh getting some some criticism in of Murray uh and of agency in games which is pretty interesting I thought mm-hmm. um that that uh agency is as uh, Mukherjee's uh kind of statement here is that agency has as it has been um thought within games is like the most maximal form of agency that has ever been considered. Yeah. You know, it, it is like this. Uh, uh, he's not making this argument, but in my mind, it's like the like a parodic libertarian version, right? Where it's like a human being is ungrounded from the earth, and any possible thing can occur, right? Yes, and Murkowski, right? And Murkowski just plainly is like, well, that's not how agency works, like in the world. So <laughs> if that is the case, then maybe we can pull back our expectations a little bit in terms of what we think agency might look like in a digital space, right? Yeah, yeah, it's um, I mean, it's the hollow deck metaphor uh, that right. you know comes uh, from Murray, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like uh, this idea that it. Uh, games or the space of play or whatever are like this totally empty featureless expanse and then uh whatever you want is what gets summoned up and like that's it right it's all about kind of uh your desires being uh uh, responded to by the space around you and populated by those things um in ways that are uh to your liking more or less which doesn't necessarily mean that like it just makes you happy forever but like um, it's all kind of like centered on you as this user having a knowledge of your own desires and then working those desires in the game space in a way that ultimately validates your feeling of desire. Um, whereas uh, what is interesting for Mukherjee is uh, like in the Blade Runner example um, that it, maybe you know that this is how the game works. Right. That if you uh, uh, kind of take the side of replicants, eventually the game is going to warp around to where you uh, your character turns out to be a replicant. Maybe, you know, that and you're kind of playing for that ending, um, but sort of uh, on the level of mechanism, uh, what is happening is that, you know, the player makes a choice that signifies a kind of uh, uh, orientation or an ethics or an idea, a, a role playing priority or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the response of the game is to take that under consideration and shift the narrative in a way that, uh, you, you know, I don't think um, you could read it as as like simple wish fulfillment. Like clearly, if this if the player is taking the side of replicants, they want to secretly have turned out to be a replicant all along. Right. It, it's more mm-hmm. uh, 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 subtle than than that. Right. Um, So uh, this is just page uh, 160. Uh, The player in the computer game does not act as if 
uh, free of her machinic persona, and neither does she get totally absorbed in such a persona. There's also a big critique here of uh, kind of immersion also. Um, instead, as explained in the subsequent chapter, her experience can be described as a becoming. Uh, in game studies, the concept that corresponds most uh, to this is known as immersion, and then later on, uh, 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 Mukherjee dispenses with the idea of immersion and replaces it with this idea of involvement, which I guess we can talk about a little bit. But the the key idea here is this zone of becoming that as you are playing the game, uh, you are sort of making choices that are putting you in a particular sort of relationship with the narrative and with the object. And then the object also becomes uh, in response to you, right? It has responses uh, to your choices. And then you respond to the choices that it has made and uh, so on and so forth until you reach the end of the game. Yep. Chapter eight, playing in the zone of becoming two, becoming as identity formation in video games. Yeah, this is I, I this feels like just a continue. I mean, obviously, there's a reason why it's playing the zone becoming two. You know, it's kind of a continuation of the other chapter. Mm-hmm. I kind of think it should have just been the other chapter, too. You know what I mean? Like, this yeah. could have just been a composite real long one. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if there was a, a, a thing here. Um, It's continuing that criticism of Murray that we talked about bringing in uh Ryan as well. Maybe we need to do that book on mm-hmm. the show. I think it's it's a pretty big gap in my knowledge. I, I know it my reputation. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. Double consciousness shows up here. Yeah. Uh which is it I is in Salen and Zimmerman the notion of double consciousness of kind of knowing you're in the game and not knowing you're in the game. I actually learned a lot about uh double consciousness over the summer. Uh right because in the United States that concept is most famously kind of um pulled from Du Bois. Yes. Right. Uh, thinking about blackness and race and so it's a little weird that it just shows up here in a general sense um or not shows up here but shows up in the salem and zimmerman to kind of get done but i read r.a judy's sentient flesh over mm-hmm. the summer um thinking in disorder poesis and black and uh he does a really long read of uh du bois's undergraduate work in there which is kind of a fascinating thing um and the work that du bois does with William James. I'm trying to think of which James brother it was. <laughs> um, and apparently the, the word double consciousness was just like in play at the time. Um, and so the version that we know of uh, the Du Bois version is just like his take on a concept that was like running around a lot at the time. So uh, just interesting, interesting thing to learn about. Mm-hmm. I thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, basically this uh, chapter, like the, the reason that shows up is that uh, there is a uh, potential conflict between the idea of the immersive and the interactive uh, here that if you become immersed in a thing, you sort of stop interacting with it, right? The thing overpowers you. Uh, whereas if you're interacting with something, you have a kind of consciousness of it. You're making sort of uh, uh, specific choices that are grounded in uh, not a total like loss or disavowal of the self. Uh, and unsurprisingly, uh, Mukherjee is like, hey, what if the immersive and the interactive are actually supplementary to one another? Uh, 
And then we get into, yeah, double consciousness that uh, on the one hand, this is a quote from page 189, on the one hand, there is no total identification between the player and the in-game character or element, uh, which seems at times like a vehicle or puppet. Yet on the other hand, if it is a puppet, it is one in which the player identity also gets absorbed. See here again the opening uh, description of like what happens when you play Grand Theft Auto and kind of the... Uh, the active subject of your sentence is constantly shifting from me to the character to you, the generalized player and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, some fun facts that also come out of here uh, in German, the word for first person shooter is ego shooter. Yes. Yes. Which is great. <laughs> uh, just, just nice work German on coming up with like what is easily the the cooler version of first person shooter well I also like the, that that uh, Mukherjee does the work here to be like and and it's also like an Anglo uh, uh, neologism too here so it's like they the word ego and shooter they're like yeah we're bringing those both in yes uh, they're like we're, we're like shooter coming from the English there um, I think that's fun yeah um <laughs> Oh, German. Yeah, I just want to read this. Yeah, the word ego shooter is a unique German coinage and is in itself a multiplicity. In German, it is it. I don't speak German, so forgive me for this, listeners. Uh, uh, Schein Anglismus, which means a pseudo anglicism. Yeah. So just uh, like I love that German not only comes up with ego shooter, but also has the term for Schein Anglismus. <laughs> yeah the adopted the adopted word yeah uh it's good it's great yeah um also an interesting uh thing that comes at the end here uh i mentioned it just because it shows up in those interviews uh that i that you did mm -hmm. and that i transcribed uh uh Chovic talked about this as well uh that the word avatar um that we I, actually, I think it kind of has fallen out of favor in game studies. Um, mm -hmm. But the way that Avatar comes into like games and digital media studies uh, from Hindu religion uh, as kind of just sort of this, you know, one developer on like that. What was it? The LucasArts game like Habitat or something uh, sort of pulled it out as like a way of talking about the really like and, and it, it was subtended by a way of thinking about the relationship between the player and kind of like their their digital representation um but that in the way that we have tended to talk about avatars they've been very like one to one that like you know i have this one avatar and you may have multiple avatars across services or something um uh but there is still a kind of like linear quality to them and uh mukherjee gets into like actual avatars in uh hindu like uh, uh like cosmology and talks about how like well there are times when there are like two avatars of the same god or at work on the earth at the same time and they like meet each other and then they have mm -hmm. to kind of like work through what that means or like come to some sort of agreement about it or like you know just, just uh, uh there's a uh a greater possibility for thinking about like selfhood uh, in, in the original context that actually gets stripped out in the ways that it is often applied to video games. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, this, uh, this kind of, um, I don't know, there's maybe four pages on the avatar here. Mm -hmm. uh, Mukherjee also has an article with a few other co-writers on it. That is just this kind of claim, but uh, more in depth if people are interested in reading about it. Mm hmm. And then the final chapter, which is just concluding remarks, uh, video games versus books and other egg Indian non-debates, a uh, little reference, the egg Indian there is a uh, reference to uh, Gulliver's Travels, uh, 
about the the people who uh, uh like the society that is at war over which end of the egg do you start eating first mm-hmm. uh and this is a, a sort of like you know cipher for uh the ludology narratology kind of question which is you know why not both so that's that's like the closing kind of gesture right like what if uh uh rather than making this an either or sort of situation uh we had a a a, you know both and kind of attitude for it and we were dedicated to building methods and outlooks for the discipline based on that perspective yeah i mean look i i think uh mukherjee's resolved it uh yeah the reality is is like uh, game studies looking even like 10 inches away from its its you know core can find methods that resolve this very easily mm-hmm. um, or or if not resolve it at least really speak to the true complexity mm-hmm. um, but I don't know anyway it's just mm-hmm. I'm like yes finally this book yeah. hell yeah <laughs> hell, it, finally this book from seven years ago I should have read already <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I also, I'm a big fan of this. Uh, I'm really glad that I read it, and I am absolutely going to be citing it on things in the future. Yeah, actually, so I pulled that part of the reason I wanted to suggest this for this, uh, you know, when we were thinking about what we were doing, the reason for the winter of books, mind, yeah, the winter of books, um, uh, the it, it was on my mind because I pulled it off the shelf for. The Magic Gathering project I was working on. Oh, I was like, I was like, oh, you know, who who was thought because that's a really complex relationship between, you know, what what impulse drives the boat. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. it, is it is the desire for collection, is the desire for play, is the desire for uh, narrative construction, is the desire for just art appreciation, right? And, and all of those things in the Magic the Gathering as a culture and as a game and in the, the overlap between those two things, uh, between say rule sets and, and human beings, um, in all those places, right. People are talking about stuff, uh, that, that show up in, in terms of ludology, neurotology, sometimes in very stark ways and sometimes in really indeterminate ways. And I was like, I bet, uh, book's got some stuff going on there and lo and behold, it does. So I'm glad that, glad that I read it here. And, and yeah, I am also similarly really excited to be, uh, mm-hmm. Talking about it, and I'm sure as you work on a book project that, I don't know, has something to do with uh, impelling people to react to very specific conditions. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and then they go and do whatever they want to do with that. Um, that seems pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, if, and then the narrative not... response to the things that people are doing by... <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. If people are not aware, Michael is working on a, a manuscript about Homestuck. And so um, uh, it, that part of the process that you can hear us doing that is on our other show, Homestuck Made This World, if you're curious about that. Uh, you can kind of hear uh, Michael build a book in real time mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> which is which is quite fun. But yeah, I think that's it. I enjoyed this book. Sounds like you enjoyed this book. I'm going to work with it in the future. Yep. Uh, so if you want to see any more about uh, some of the stuff from this book, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch and you can support us and get notes for this episode of Game Study Study Buddies as well as all other notes for all other episodes we've ever done. Literally, there is a, a an archive now of easily over 100, possibly over 200 pages worth of notes uh, because we're at episode 53 here. And that's, yeah, assuming we write like two pages of notes for one book, which is 
a very conservative estimate. I tend to go pretty long on my notes. Uh, there's all sorts of things that you can get your eyes on, things that we talk about on the show, but also like ideas or uh, connections that we make uh, just in the notes themselves. You can check those out. Um, you can also support us to get access to all other sorts of bonus content uh, having to do with other shows, the podcast feed for Too Much Future, which has come up here, uh, uh, bonus episodes for Homestuck Made This World also come up here. Uh, but otherwise, you know, follow us on Twitter. Uh uh, twitter.com slash range touch and we're on co-host now co-host.org slash range touch yeah and it's true yeah you can like keep up with us see what we're doing and uh, uh pass the word of us along to other folks because we are uh, uh totally like we only advertise on ourselves for ourselves <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, you- yeah, yeah. We are entirely word of mouth, and uh, we don't buy advertising, and we don't do advertising. And uh, we've gotten some cool offers in the past <laughs> to read you <laughs> ads about things that I am certain you would not want to buy. <laughs> uh, now, we are always looking for a coffee sponsor. This is one of my one exception here. Mm-hmm. I, I will talk about the coffee I'm drinking in exchange for coffee. If you own a coffee roastery and you want to send us coffee you know, every month or every few weeks, mm-hmm. we'll talk about coffee. Mm-hmm. But other than that, we are entirely reader supported, listener supported, not reader supported. Well, you can read whatever you want to, I guess. But uh, we're listener supported. So you can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to support us there for any amount that you want. But $5 a month, as Michael was saying, gets you a lot of stuff and $10 gets you some even more stuff. Ne- early next year, we'll be starting a new show when Homestuck Made This World ends. If you want to have a voice in what we do, Maybe get on that Patreon. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Patreon's going to get the first crack at determining what we do. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to be exciting. And otherwise, we will see you back here next month when we reconvene to talk about James Paul G's What Video Games Have to Teach Us About, and I, I know we messed this up last time. I want to double check it. Uh, learning and literacy. For some reason... I always want to say literacy and learning, but it's learning and literacy. Everyone does. Everyone wants to say that. It, it is true. This was a conversation that was happening in the Discord. It's like, why does why does it sound better to say literacy and learning and not learning and literacy? Learning and literacy and learning. Learning and liter- learning. Literacy. Ah, literacy. Is it is it a syllabalism thing? I think it's a syllabalism thing. I think there's something about like the the hard T in literacy that makes it feel like it should come first, and learning kind of like uh, is softer and it leads you out of the phrase. There's a rhythm, right? Literacy and learning. Whereas learning, that's not that's not good. No, <laughs> this is why you got to say your titles out loud. Uh huh. <laughs> the world is born from zero. <laughs> Great title. Big Boss said it first, so I knew it would sound good. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> uh. So uh, anyway, all right. Well, thanks for listening to the show. We we really appreciate it as always. If you liked what you heard here, tell somebody else about it. That helps us out a lot. And uh, we'll see you in a month to talk about James Paul G. Until next time, the social is predicated on its exclusions.